and welcome to BISA Industry Trend Watch podcast. Good to have you with us today. Industry Trend Watch is a monthly series with industry leaders discussing trends in the financial institutions channel. Productivity trending is provided by our bankchannelresearch.com portal, an interactive tool that reports on channel performance based on data collected monthly from over 50 financial institutions. In addition to industry trends, you will hear our guests provide their perspectives on the evolving strategic initiatives that are driving success and enabling our channel to better compete in the broader financial services industry. But first, we'd like to thank Ameriprise for making these podcasts possible. And as a show of appreciation, let's please listen to this brief message. This is Chris Melton, National Director of the Ameriprise Financial Institutions Group. Ameriprise Financial Institution Group is a proud sponsor of the BISA Monthly Industry Trending Podcast Series. With more than 25 years of experience and knowledge in serving the investment program needs of local banks and credit unions, Ameriprise Financial Institution Group brings a depth of understanding as well as investment capabilities to help clients and members feel more confident, connected, and in control of their financial life. We look forward to learning more about your financial institution and sharing how a successful investment program can be a competitive advantage. Call us at 800-679-1237 or visit us at ameriprise.com slash AFIG. Securities offered by Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Not federally insured, no financial institution guarantee, may lose value. Thank you. Hello and welcome to BISA Trend Watch. I am Scott Stathis. I'll be your host along with Bob Mattel, who will introduce himself shortly. So this month, we're going to continue a discussion track we initiated last month, and that is our channel's transition from investment services to wealth management. So is it real or is it window dressing? And if real, at least for some, what are the emerging best practices? So we have two executives on our panel today, one from a large regional bank and one from a national third-party broker-dealer. And we're looking forward to the discussion. But first, Bob, let me pass it to you to introduce yourself and then have our guests introduce themselves. Sounds like a plan. Hello, everyone. I am Bob Mattel, and let me welcome you to this, our 22nd edition of BISA Industry Trend Watch. And as Scott said, we have another great panel with us today. But before we meet them, let me remind you to visit BISANet.org for all things BISA. And remember, it's never too early to register for the BISA Regulatory and Compliance Summit, which is coming in November. Now, let's get going. From the great state of North Carolina, in a town I hear is now called Charlotte, Jeremy Hudson. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. My fault. I I appreciate Thanks for having me. It is Charlotte, North Carolina. I made up Charlotte. Thank you for quoting me on that forever. I work for Ameriprise Financial, and I work specifically in our bank and credit union division responsible for working with community banks and credit unions throughout the East Coast and looking at their broker-dealers, how they work from a wealth management perspective inside of their banks and credit unions. So happy to be here. been doing this for 20-some years, so hope that can add some value in the discussion. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks so much. We appreciate you joining us on the panel. And from the deep-dish pizza capital of the world, from Chicago, Illinois, we have Joe Scarda. All right. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Scott. Good afternoon, Jeremy and everybody. So Joe Scarta, as Bob had said, I am the president of the wealth management business at KeyBank. 
within our wealth management business that is inclusive of a retail business that operates out of our branch network, as well as a private banking business, a family office, and an institutional advisory business that partners uh, traditionally with a uh, commercial bank. So excited to be here, Bob, and I appreciate the uh, invitation. And thank you again to you for uh, participating with us today. Well, let's get right into it, Scott, with question number one. All right. So let's kind of start at a high level. Then we're going to dig into this wealth management stuff that you referenced, Joe. So let's start with the environment we're in. Obviously, things have been incredibly volatile lately. The market has been, well, (laughs) it's been something. So, you know, we have inflation we're dealing with, supply chain issues, interest rate hikes, political unrest. Certainly, we have staffing challenges. So how is this affecting your business? How's it affecting the revenue projections, the products you sell, and what you're seeing for the balance of the year? And maybe, Jeremy, you can kick us off, and then, Joe, we can hear from you. Jeremy? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. It's, it's interesting you're asking, because if you think about what I and my role have been speaking with institutions about for years is this inflection point that the institution space is at of, you know, are you growing or not growing, and what does that look like? And as you get into a volatile market like this, I remember a boss many years ago always said volatility creates opportunity, I guess, because I've been in sales my whole life. You know, that's always a way to turn something negative into a positive to keep your sales team motivated. But I've always kind of lived by that code. And as you think of where we're at today and all the things that are changing, what I'm seeing as I meet with banks and credit unions in the country is it is the volatility is making them sit back and go, gosh, should we really be, are we with the right partner? Are we doing the business the right way? Are we segmenting correctly? All these things we'll talk about today, it's really a time that they really look inward. And this goes from products. So you're certainly seeing advisors these days, I think we'd all agree, probably earning their keep more than they did last year when the markets are up. You can kind of sail and ski behind that some. So you've got even down to the advisors going, do I have the right technology? Am I meeting with my clients the correct way? Meaning, are we planning or are we just selling product? And there's all these things that are coming into conversations in the very first meeting as we sit down with an institution and it's shining a light on it for sure these days. That's my reaction to kind of how I think of the industry and kind of how that will affect not only what banks are expected to do this year, but what they'll do in the future. It'll really change, I think, how we do business, both from the pandemic and out of it and everything, all the changes coming out. Hopefully it'll be positive. But with change, there's a lot of opportunity. Jeremy, one of the things that we've seen as we work with banks and credit unions across the country, and we look at the advisors and the programs that are successful is that communication matters, right? And what I mean by that, when we're in these types of trying times, if you're an advisor that is staying in touch with your clients, communicating with them, explaining things and saying that, you know, difficult environment, but we have things under control, we have a plan, stick to it. We've seen this happen before, et cetera, right? That communication makes a huge difference in the advisor's ability to gather assets. So it's almost like the haves and the have nots, right? Those advisors that are good at communicating and making their clients feel comfortable are gathering assets and those that aren't are losing assets, right? So it is to a significant degree, as you implied, all about communication. So Joe, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with Jeremy wholeheartedly, Scott, in that it is market volatility that oftentimes creates opportunity for advisors. What we have learned is this, the firms and the advisors that are best able to package their advice and proactively project it out to their client base are generally the winners in times of market volatility, 
who find themselves not only surviving the volatility through the market, but even thriving through it and find themselves gathering assets. So it's about that proactive sharing of advice. And secondly, what we found is that to the extent that a client relationship is based more on financial planning or what is important to a client, what is their investment objectives, future goals, et cetera, is significantly more important to them than whatever market returns are. So anytime we have a relationship that's rooted and grounded in a financial plan, those conversations around market volatility seem to become a lot easier because it's a lot easier for an advisor to shift out of what is probably a very uncomfortable conversation for a client, which is, you know, how do you absorb market downturns like this into, okay, let's talk about how this might impact your retirement or how this might impact your ability to send your children to college, et cetera. And those conversations, they generally find out that, you know, the short-term volatility, of course, has some impact, but generally not detrimental to what's important to them long-term. And the last thing I would say in this, Scott, is I think it's just, it's important for all of us to remember, I got licensed in 2000 as an example. This will be the fourth bear market slash recession I've seen in 22 years. Market volatility is normal. It happens through cycle by design. Like everything we are experiencing today, as much as headlines would like you to believe it's the first time we've ever seen it, the truth is it happens about every five to seven years and people should not only not overreact to it, but should even expect it over time. Yeah, no, it's funny. So 100% true, obviously. The only thing that you can say it's the first time is crypto. So Joe, you said something very interesting. You said package advice and proactively share it with clients. So the implication there is scale, right? So what you're, I think if I'm interpreting that correctly, what you're implying is that some of your best advisors are figuring out how to scale their advice and keep their clients comfortable. Any kind of insider tips relative to how they're doing that? Yeah. So it was important for us. I'd shared earlier how there's a few different businesses within KeyBank that I have the pleasure of managing from a wealth perspective. Within our operations group, we also have a chief investment office. This chief investment office does the asset allocation modeling and strategy for our fee-based accounts within the private bank. They historically, however, have not done so for our retail business. But within our chief investment office, we also have a wealth institute that pumps out a lot of intellectual capital that our clients find interesting in normal times, but are particularly interested in times of volatility. And it might include information, okay, a year after a 20% decline in the market, what is the likelihood that you're up three years after that 20% decline? Well, it's 95%. There's things within that advice column within the CIO office that our advisors can use to package up advice that's timely. And that is designed to bring comfort to a client's investment psyche as they go through cycle like this. Yeah, that's good. It's important stuff. And listen, scale, the ability to scale yourself if you're an advisor is critical if you're going to grow your business, right? All right. Well, let's, so let's dig into this whole transition from investment services to wealth management, Bob, and pass it back to you. Sure thing. There is obviously a trend in our industry to migrate from, and, you know, we think of it in investment services programs, but I'll go back because I've been doing this for a while. So we used to call it the brokerage program. We called it financial services. And we're calling it investment services. Now it's wealth management and it's more than just words. But, you know, we have a lot of folks out there that are going to be listening to this podcast. What does it mean to you? And how do you see this transition progressing, Joe, at Key Bank and in the industry? Because, you know, it is a big difference, investment services to wealth management. And a lot of it talks about real financial planning, not financial planning. When I say real financial planning, it's more 
It's more about grow and protect. It's much more invasive, but it also produces much more in terms of opportunities. So what's your take? Yeah, I think it's a great question, Bob. I mean, look, we at Key prefer to use the word advice. We give clients advice on what is important to them financially and how they can accomplish it. Now, how you solution for that advice is different client by client. So it might include things that would traditionally fall under the bucket of brokerage or or something like that, be it annuities and more transactional-based items. It might be fee-based accounts that are like driven off asset allocation modeling with a manager due diligence process tactical and strategic shifts over time that are advantageous for clients, that is a client by client decision. So what we are trying to work with our advisors and make sure it's something that is just engrossed in the entire wealth organization we have here is how do you start that consultative relationship with the client that is goals-based, not market-based? So what's important to them? Illustrating those goals through financial plans so it becomes real for a client add substance to the advice that you give that client on a later date, but it also gives you something to fall back on to the extent that products under deliver, underperform, or market volatility might bring your portfolio returns below what you were hoping to experience when you first made the decision to invest. All of those conversations get significantly easier. Now, once you have that advice model, it's built on financial planning, then it's about how can you get the organization to just surround the client with the best resources you have? That's where our Wealth Institute comes to life for clients where it's like, okay, we can provide intellectual capital or white papers, or we do client calls. We have Dr. Jeremy Siegel on a client call coming up later in the week to say, okay, we're going to give you our best thinking, our best advice. So you know exactly how we are interpreting current economic conditions, how we're trading it in portfolios, and what does it mean for you as an investor? And if you can package that advice and transport it, like I said, the clients, and you can do so proactively going to them versus them coming to you. It's that degree of confidence on us proactively reaching out that generally brings confidence to a client as well. But it's all about how do you take that intellectual capital that generally might sit in a CIO office? How do you use it to educate your advisors? And then you can create consistency in your educational platform on here's what's going on in the macro econ. Here's what we're doing in portfolios to either adjust or respond to it here's investor what you can and should expect. It's that clarity that brings comfort. And that seems to make a lot of sense. And that definitely is a lot different than what a brokerage or a FA program is all about. It's becoming more of that trusted advisor, really building a client relationship. And let me ask you one more question about how that affects the overall relationships and if there's any team involvement as well. It sounds like you know, you're already aligned with the chief investment officer. The Wealth Institute is another avenue of advice. What about what if there's a credit need or, or other or other issues in a customer's portfolio? Yep. So we have the ability to do securities-backed lending. We do have resources that are you know within our wealth management business that can help from an educational perspective, both educate our advisors as well as go direct to clients to the extent that a client needs that. But for us, what that's really about, Bob, is how do we take our financial planning group, which we have a big financial planning group that's generally been reserved for our private bank. Same with trust services, same with like securities-backed lending, all these resources that we have in key that were kind of built and maintained in a silo. How do we create doors in the silo now so that other people can have access and availability to it? Admittedly, you have to be very careful and respectful on how you do that in a regulatory environment. You want to make sure you're doing these things in a way that a regulator understands what you're doing and is in, in alignment with what they would want and quite frankly expect. So we've been very careful about that, but we've also been very overt in telling them we have an opportunity to make our people better, that are going to provide better advice, a better service for clients, 
which is ultimately what we all want. However, we do have to create some conduits here through some of our advice apparatuses directly to our advisors and clients where historically they have not existed. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Jeremy, I was going to ask you, because obviously the whole compliance piece of this and the regulatory aspect of it probably affects a lot of the folks that you're talking to. So what do you think? It really does. It's funny. uh, You know, you just, Joe, described the Holy Grail, right? I mean, that's, that's the Holy Grail. And we've been speaking about the Holy Grail for many years where you have this true holistic, you come one-stop shop type approach, right? Where we can do everything at KeyBank or wherever the bank is. The comment I was going to make, you know, Joe, you were talking about goals-based planning and using really the word advice. It was like you were looking at my opening deck that I use with every meeting that I have. And in one of the slides, I spent a long time talking about the willingness for clients to pay for advice. And pay can be talked about how you do that, but the willingness for that and then how by having advice, you know, we use like Money Guide Pro at Ameriprise, right? So that I'm sure we're familiar, right? You got the little green circle, right? So volatility, I, you go to your app, you look, oh, it's still green. Okay, now let's talk about other areas of need, right? So having that communication directly into it is, is, is super important. The other comment I'd say, you know, compliance-wise, right? I'm far from a compliance person, but I get the regulatory space. And, and what I'm seeing, I think, is the regulators, both FINRA, FCC, OCC, all of them are starting, and Joe, I think you were tiptoeing into that a little bit, that I believe you have to be careful how you do it, but I believe they understand the need to be more and less siloed inside of an institution than ever before. And maybe said differently, they're not as scared of that. That might be a way to say it, right? If, if, if I'm being honest. And I know we're talking about trust and private banking, all these things, but having all these things come together in one place, so long as you're following it regulatory, people are licensed the right way and all that stuff, that's what sings. And that's what keeps you a happy key client, right? But I think the regulators are getting more comfortable with this because I think we've finally cracked the nut. We've talked about it so long, <laughs> if we're being honest, right? Like how long have we been talking about this, right? Head of wealth, having everything roll up to them. Exactly. And shameless plug again for BISA, November 14th, 15th, Regulatory Compliance Summit. Don't forget. But you hit it on the head, though, with this stuff. There's a lot of organizations that are kind of like, what do I do? Do I keep doing this myself? Do I talk to somebody like you, Jeremy, for building out my program? Right. right. Yep. Let me ask you one more question. We're talking about this shift to wealth management. What about digital tools for what, what are the ex- expectations you know, in the wealth management space. And you mentioned Money Guide Pro, and I know they're looking to do something on the super high net worth side as well, which kind of leads you to more wealth management. What are the expectations of a wealth management customer versus a retail customer? I mean, what are the offerings like? I'll take this one first, Jeremy. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, go ahead, Jeff. So everything that I've seen, every stitch of client survey or broker dealer research and evidence that I have seen would suggest that you have to have in this new world of client expectations around their wealth management provider, you have to have both a digital advice arm as well as like a human empowered advice arm. And it's not about which of these two things would I prefer as an investor or a client of your firm, but it's how much do I need of each during different types of market cycles. And there's going to be times when clients are more digitally dependent in a more benign market environment where they're going to judge their client experience with your firm very much by that experience to what can they obtain and ascertain regarding their accounts digitally on their own and self-service the extent they need to. And then there's going to be times where they seek out more of a human element in that relationship in times of volatility like now. And it's, you know, again, you know, the conversation within KeyBank in that regard 
is it's not, there will be a day when any firm in this industry will lose the right to compete to the extent that that digital experience is so inferior to what has become the industry norm, you will just, you'll just see max exodus. And it's one of those things, unfortunately, not too dissimilar to a blockbuster or a Kodak or other cautionary tales out there. By the time you realize it's over, it's too late to fix. So like, you got to be on the front end of that tech planning and be super sensitive to how that impacts the client experience over time. Good, Jeremy. Yeah, you know, it's a selfish plug, right? If you look at the industry and who supports this business when you're not your own broker-dealer, there's a lot of consolidation in this space. And it's a lot of it because of what you just spoke of is the keeping up with the Joneses, the Amazon experience, right? We, We all use those examples. By the way, there's one blockbuster left. It's a great documentary on Netflix to watch if anybody hasn't seen it. And she gets all the old blockbuster stuff sent to it. It's amazing. If you haven't seen it. Um, uh, so there is one still. It's in uh, Bend, Oregon, by the way. Fun fact. Uh, but, you know, so <laughs> the technology experience is important. I, I think you said something that's important, too, is, is you know, I'm a 47-year-old guy, so I'm not a millennial and I'm not a baby boomer. I'm, I'm kind of in the middle, right? And so I feel like I could see it from both sides. Like I went through college without a cell phone and the internet. So I'm kind of old enough for that. And the reason I use all that examples is I talk about it all the time is just young people aren't the only ones who want an app. Young people aren't the only ones who want technology. I think the average age on Facebook is like 58, right? We all say Facebook is the new MySpace for the kids, right? And so I think sometimes we sit and go, gosh, we only need to deliver that client experience that's quick and simple to only the emerging clients and not our larger. Those high net worth clients are going on Facebook just like the 25-year-old that's got 10 bucks to rub together, in my opinion. I'd be happy to debate that, but that's my opinion. (laughs) They're trading on their own too, and they expect to be able to do it from a phone. That's right. And their digital experience is not just a list of their accounts. They want a lot more than that. They want much more in terms of tools, a vault maybe for their documents, more in-depth reporting and stuff like that, stuff that they can see real-time, online time. I have two opportunities myself. I have one with a wirehouse, one with a bank. I don't want to tell you which one gives me more. I think you know. Yep. With that, we'll move it over to Scott. <laughs> yeah, so just just picking up on a couple of things that you guys said. So... One is the regulators and the implication, Jeremy, that you made is that what the regulators don't want to see is trying to pump as many products as possible per household, right? That that whole thing that Wells got in trouble for. But yet, if you're an institution like he, who has a, a variety of departments and trying to break down silos, the implication there is that you're trying to bring more stuff to bear for your clients. So the paradigm has to shift a little bit. What the regulators like to see is an institution being needs-based. And what that means is servicing as many needs as possible, right? So if you frame your work cross-departmentally, and I think that cross-departmental cooperation is incredibly important for true wealth management. So if you frame that cross-departmental work in the context of what we are trying to do as an institution is serve as many of our clients' needs as possible, that's fine. And that works for the regulators. We always talk about the six core needs, right? So that's what you're targeting. The regulators are good with that. Now, the other thing that's interesting, and this leads directly into our next question, is, Joe, what you said about the digital offerings. So we used to, as an industry, think about client segmentation horizontally with low net worth on one side and high net worth on the other. And how do you map delivery channels to all those segments in between, right? The world has changed. So that's a one-dimensional client segmentation model. We are now in a world where there's a two-dimensional client segmentation model. So the other dimension is vertical, 
and it's self-service on the bottom and high touch on the top and everything in between. So now you basically have quadrants or areas of that client segmentation map that you have to map delivery channels to because there's nothing that is going to stop a high net worth individual from also wanting a self-service or digital solution for part of what they do, right? So it's that two-dimensional client segmentation scheme that you have to map delivery channels to now. And digital is incredibly important. I mean, if you just think about it from the, the next geners, the Robin Hoods and Acorns and SoFis are eating our lunch, right? We don't have most of their assets because those apps have most of their assets. So what are we going to do to get them under our tent? Because they're our wealthy clients for tomorrow. It's a big question. We have to get really good about getting them under our tent as well, or else, and I've said this over and over again, it's going to be like a game of musical chairs. The music's going to stop. We're not going to have a chair, right? So that's a big deal going forward. So anyway, that leads to my question because it has to do with advisor tiering. So this is kind of a simple aspect of what I just described. But as you look at, and Joe, maybe you can start us off with the answer to this. As you look at investment services and the trend to you know, what we used to call investment services to wealth management, there's an implication in there for tiering, for advisor tiering, right? And you know, so now with you know, geography doesn't matter anymore. On one end of the spectrum, you have remote advisors, right? You have digital too, but let's just talk about advisors specifically for this question. So you have remote advisors on one end of the spectrum and what a lot of firms are calling second story advisors on the other. They're really true wealth advisors that may or may not be on a team, but more likely than not, they are leveraging a team of at least sales assistants or associate advisors, if not more full-blown executives across other departments in the institution. But how does that affect what you're seeing, Joe, from the need of advisor tiering in your program as it evolves going forward? Yep. I love the question, Scott. You said a lot there. So I'm going to hit on both segmentation with clients and segmentation with employees. because I think both are important and both kind of have to happen in a way that complements the client and employee experience. So the first, I'll just give you like a real simple example, because I agree with you and the Robin Hoods and and that whole investor type that generally is self-directed. They generally oftentimes do a lot of their own research around advice. So what your firm provides is important. But for us, as an example, half of our clients within our retail business have under 50,000 invested with us total. So half of our client loadings, it represents under 5% of our overall revenue. So right now they are coded to financial advisors. We have created a, you know, it's a centralized call center essentially where these clients, when they call in, someone picks up the phone after three rings, the service level agreement is higher on picking up the phone and callbacks that, you know, they generally get a relationship built with people in the call center. Just for us, that was a no brainer. Literally, I think within the next few weeks, we're going to implement that where half of our client loadings within our retail business are going to shift to the key service and investment center which we think is going to be additive to the client experience and just be a good thing for them. Secondly, we do have teams and we do have a program where as junior partners can learn from a more senior partner, just how do you partner with a branch effectively? How do you position, how do you profile clients in a way where it feels natural and consultative versus maybe things they've done in a prior role or in a prior firm, all that. So I think that's an important segmentation and you know, I think it's an important segmentation point as well. The last one you hit on, which I also agree needs to happen, we at Key are not there yet. I think it's an underestimated endeavor that many firms make on how tricky it can get, but you referred to the second story model. So we're going to have a centralized group that's going to be for our clients under a certain net worth that 
the complexity, the advice they need and what they consider good service are going to be different from what some of our higher net worth clients are going to think. We're going to have our branch model that will very much be the acquisition engine. There is a point, however, where the branch, the book itself becomes a full-time job or it has to come at the expense of partnership with the branch or partnership with the branch comes at the expense of how well my service in my existing book. So I am a full believer that a firm should have a second story model. We kind of sort of had one at key. We don't anymore. We have every intention of having one again at a later date. We're going to have to grow it into it or as an organization. Once we produce more seven figure producers, as we get more book sizes up in the, you know, pick a number, a couple hundred to 300 million. And when we get the revenue numbers up there, we will create that off ramp for advisors that what we're going to do though, when we do do that, because whenever you take someone that built their business through like in a branch environment where the bulk of their growth was built on partnership and you take them out of that collaboration channel and put them in an environment where they have to be more entrepreneurial. Some people are going to make that conversion very naturally when others don't. So it's incumbent on the firm. If you're going to build that second story model, you also owe it to your advisor team to say, here's how you had success in your prior role. Here's what's going to lead to success in your new role, given the resources that you have train them effectively to be able to do it right. And if you do that, you can bring that training and education to bear on that second story model so they can not only survive, but thrive in that new environment. Then you have some, then, then you have something you can build on. But in the absence of that, if you just move them out of a branch environment, expect them of their own volition to learn how to be entrepreneurial when it might not come natural or certainly isn't something they've had to do historically, you're going to get inconsistent results. Yeah, it does have to be a smooth transition for all the reasons you mentioned. It's interesting. We did a case study with a team from Truist at one of our executive retreats, and it's a team of three. And the the quarterback on the team, the wealth advisor, kind of evolved to the point where they are now this team of three. We're talking about book optimization, right? And the average advisor in our channel has about 700 clients in their book, which is crazy. So they're a very productive team. And, and we asked, so how many clients optimally do you have in your book? 30. <laughs> so they're essentially a family office, which we're going to get to that question, jokes. I know you mentioned family office as well, but I mean, that, that shows you where it can go, right? If it's transitioned well, they work with 30 wealthy families and they're killing it and they have a nice lifestyle. <laughs> so yeah, it's all interesting stuff. And it's good to hear that you have a transition in mind, Joe, as you move forward with your advisors and the tiering that's necessary. Jeremy, you have thoughts on that one? Yeah, just a couple of things. It's interesting, the call center, I'll call it their, your call center, the centralized approach, Joe, that you mentioned. I've seen those work more often than not, if you do them right. In fact, when I joined Ameriprise a couple of years ago, I learned that we have basically that. We have this centralized team. So not a commercial for Ameriprise. So the reason I'm bringing that up is, you know, we have 10,000 some advisors out there and they're, they experience the same things where, you, you know, you can't get your, your books get so big and you need to be able to deliver a consistent client experience and your value prop starts getting chipped away at it as that grows. And then wake up one day and your value prop is pretty thin. And, and so being able to kind of offload some of that stuff. So we do that for our advisors. In fact, a couple of institutions that don't use that where they, you know, answer the phone as ABC bank, right. And, and, and are, are using our employees. It also creates a great bench, right? So, you know, you talk about having a centralized center, you talk about junior, you know, where you have juniors, you move up to second story. We all know the stories of the amount of, you know, the age of our advisor base and all those kind of things. And then last comment, I, I uh, the challenge always, we've all done it. When you go to an advisor and say, I'd like to take clients away from you and branches away, but I promise it'll be beneficial to you. 
And if you just let that stop, then you're not going to get very far, right? So, you know, I always believe that you got to put some science in it, right? And so you show the 80-20 rule, whatever it is, you show the science of wallet penetration and what that generates. You get them really excited about creating a next level value component. You know that as a leader, but it's amazing how the science changes the tune more often than not when you have those discussions as you start tiering your advisors. You have to at least have a spreadsheet, right, Jeremy? <laughs> Something. Tell them how it works, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's usually really eye-opening. It really is. You know, it's, I've seen it so many times, guys. I bet we've all seen it where you, you, the advisor swears up and down that they think their book's X and you start doing the science on it and it's way off what they think, where they think their revenue is coming from these clients and it ain't. I mean, I've seen it thousands of times. So the science doesn't lie, right? Numbers don't lie. Well, the other interesting part of the science, and Joe, maybe you've seen this as well, is that if you really dig into an advisor's book, the one thing that you realize right away, if they're spread too thin with 700 clients, is that they are not managing the majority of their clients' assets. It's the minority, almost across the board. When I say across the board, if you analyze the average advisor's book and look at the tiers in their book, right, tiers based on investable assets, the higher you go in their books the less of the investable assets of those clients they're managing. The lower you go in the book, they're more. You want the inverse, right? If you're an advisor that's progressing, you want the inverse of that. But the fact is most of our advisors are afterthoughts because they're managing a majority of their clients' assets and somebody else is managing a majority. So by definition, they're afterthoughts and they're not a trusted advisor. Now, the best advisors out there get that and they're focused on wallet share and they do what it needs to build a trust so their clients give them the majority of their assets to manage. And that's where we want all our advisors to be, right? That's what we want to coach too. So there's a lot to be said for analyzing an advisor's book and opening their eyes and say, listen, here's the reality of your book. Here's what you can do if you really focus on gathering more assets from existing clients and then bringing the right clients into your book as you grow your book. And Joe, you've been around the block. I'm sure <laughs> that's nothing new to you, right? You've seen that. Yeah, no, I agree with everything you're saying there, Scott. I think advisors, for the most part, agree with it. It can be a little bit tougher bridge to cross for some folks, depending on where their careers travel through. Yep. You know, I would put it this way. Advisors got to look at their businesses. If there are only so many clients that I can have or I actually have a real relationship Right. And then you got to think about it through like the lens of, okay, we are also in a unique environment in that we have a storefront delivery model. Most of these advisors are sitting in branches, right? And if some yeah. client comes in and a client has X dollar amount, they want to be able to talk to a banker and they get referred to the advisor. They feel compelled to do it. You can't really say no. And so your firm has got to build an off-ramp for those clients to say, you know what, we have a fantastic centralized group that's going to be able to help you through account opening with DocuSign and all. They're going to make it as easy as they can. You know what I mean? So, so the firm has got to provide tools that help advisors do that. The centralized investment group is one of them. Two other ones that I think are critically important come to mind. The first is financial planning, where we talked about that one a great deal. But we've also now, I think Jeremy was talking about using the Money Guy Pro. There are now functions within that where you can actually give a client the ability to play with it on their own. And then the advisor gets notified. So you can make this more of a digitally engaging experience that also provides transparency to the advisor, which I think helps from an asset gathering perspective and just awareness in and of itself puts the advisor in a better position to gather. And then second, something we've come up with, and it's not, you know, most I think banks have it now is an aggregation tool. We've used eMoney for an aggregation tool. And as long as you train your advisors to coach clients to effectively use it, 
then through using it, you gain all kinds of awareness. Do they have assets? It is open kimono at that point. So you get exactly where their money is. You can have a just a real dialogue around, I understand you have some money there. That's fine. What do you like about the service that you get from those folks? And, and then you can start to understand what truly is going to like invoke investment decisions for your clients over time through that transparency, additional questions, et cetera. Yeah, no, exactly. So I'm going to pass it to Bob, but one, one last comment on what you just said, Joe. What's amazing about the combination of those two things is that if you, as an advisor, input into you know, Money Guide, eMoney, whatever you're using, what you know of the client's assets, and let's just take Money Guide, right? So then you get a percentage of success, likelihood of success. So you pass that to a client, let them mess with it online. And when you pass it to them, it says that their likelihood of success is 65%. The first thing they do is like, Oh, no, it's not because I have this and I have that. And they start putting it in there. Then they use the aggregation. They put it on there. It's like, see, they go back to their advisor. My likelihood of success is now 90%, but now the advisor sees all the other assets and you're off and running, right? So if used right, that's a beautiful piece of leverage. All right. So Bob, back to you. We've talked about private banking and trust, family office. And I think that's just kind of lining you up for that next question, right? Yes. As we tell further into wealth management. How should private banking and trust work cooperatively with this classic investment and insurance services strategy that we have out there? And what can you share about these, Joe? Obviously, you're aligned with the Chief Investment Office Wealth Institute you've been talking about, but this is totally different, private banking and and trust. How's that all working at Key? Yeah, so a couple of things that we're working on. One that comes to mind, it comes to top of mind for me is mass affluence strategy that we'll be rolling out towards the last month or so of this year and, and we'll kind of hit full stride in Q1 of next year. We're titling it Key Private Client. And it's and what you'll start to see is that first, most of our clients' service experience with our firms and the bank wealth management business starts with how does that deposit account and that interaction with a banker go. And that's generally their the starting block for, here's how I'm gonna to start to like make my opinion on the capabilities of your firm. So what we've taken is all the private banking capabilities, most of them I should say, as it relates to fee structure, we got rid of all our fees, ATM fees, wire fees, all the nuisance fees that an affluent person would generally find at a minimum annoying and at a maximum upsetting enough where you have lost almost permanently the ability to go back to that client and ask for additional monies. So all of that, getting the deposit account right from a fee perspective. And then we've also got it where we've increased our money transfer limits, both by way of ATMs, Zelle payments, ACH activity, all of that stuff knowing that if they are doing home improvement work, as an example, the total dollar amount that they might spend in home improvement work for an affluent client is going to, generally speaking, be far in excess of what your average retail client is going to do. So just aligning the service that you get in your deposit account with what you know that client is going to need, want, and quite frankly, expect, because you can get it at most firms now. So getting the deposit account right is an important part of making that, okay, how do you treat private banking clients and how much of that should bleed over into a mass affluent client? That's kind of where we've started. And then the second thing is, to me, Bob, it's all about advisor education. What are you doing to train and develop people? So within our private bank today, like I shared, we have a financial planning group. They do direct the client work, but they also work enough with RMs in the private bank that they also are educators of RMs in addition to go straight to end user. There's no reason we can't take a group of these folks 
and not only get them working with private bank RMs, but also our retail advisors to say, hey, here's how you input data in a way that's going to be easier for you. Once you get your pie chart and you have your side-by-side -side look, here's how the dialogue can and should go when you spot a dis discrepancy on how they have their assets positioned versus how they should. And here's how you present a solution in a way where it doesn't come across as like a sale as much as it is a service or you're fulfilling a need that you know they have. So oftentimes it's about how do you create the educational conduits throughout the organization that allow the intelligence that you have embedded in some parts of the organization to get to the other places you need to do it. What we have found, quite frankly, is that everybody within our wealth apparatus, whether you're in the institutional business dealing with our most complex clients, or if you're in our retail business, all of them want, are able, and have the capacity to learn each other's business. And we have set out to do so with the goal that we should be able to put our advisors, regardless of their line of business, which whatever the four monolines they come out of, we should be able to put them in front of any astute investor and they should be able to hold their own, be it a family wealth client, an IA client, institutional advisor, or retail client. They all should be educated, trained, and developed the same. And that makes a lot of sense because if you go and look at really what the six core needs are of any customer, it includes savings and liquidity. And that's coming out from the deposit side of the organization. Credit, obviously, lending, income now, later, protection and legacy. And that kind of completes the whole picture. And by bringing in deposits into that, it makes a lot of sense from a uh, overall holistic approach to a client. Jeremy, uh, your thoughts on this? Yeah, that's spot on. I couldn't agree. That. I, I think one of the keys there is training. You know, you're right. Everybody with a license, regardless of their role in this business, should be able to have that type of conversation and be trained to have that level of a conversation. So I, that really resonates for me. I guess when you look at private banking and trust, we often talk about, you know, and these are just more questions I tend to ask institutions is, do you, A, are they licensed? Are the private bankers licensed, right? We battle with that. Is, is the right thing to do? It probably depends on the situation. You know, one could argue they tend to be a lot more involved in the relationship if they're being paid in a way that's different by being licensed. So, Joe, I'll, I'd love to know how you guys are when I finish my comments. The other is, how does trust work with inside of a private banking solution, right? So you're meeting with Ma and Paul Kettle and they need trust services. How how is that handoff into trust? You know, that's that Chinese wall we're always trying to solve, right? We get over to the other side, you know, should it be over there? You've got to have from the very top of the house a full understanding of what belongs in what silo. Those are the challenges. Those are what when I speak to institutions, they're trying to solve is those things right there. You know, and it's my comment I made earlier about the Holy Grail. You know, we used to call it bank wealth. It's bank wealth, right? It's, it's a holistic wealth offering, whether it's trust or brokerage or annuities or insurance or whatever it is, but have this holistic, you know, it's what advisors are doing. Scott, you say this all the time, you know, independents are eating our lunch in the bank space. Why? Because they're much better at delivering a holistic advice-based approach to their clients. And that's why they're beating bank reps out. And it's facts are friendly. So when you deliver that advice, Joe, as you talk about and make it very advice driven, that makes you, for lack of a better way of saying it, it matches you up with what the outside of our world is, is happening every day at, at a wirehouse for an affluent customer walking into a Morgan Stanley or something. Right. Those would be my comment. Are they licensed, Joe, those private bankers? Yeah. So it's a great question. I'll go there in one second. First, something that you talked on, Jeremy, that also just, I guess, resonated with me is that, of course, like we've talked about the need to be careful in this business because we have regulators and 
they have expectations on us that are in the betterment of the end user and investors. And we take our relationship with our regulators incredibly serious. We have like separate regulatory structures under these businesses that are specific to that particular business's regulator. So FINRA versus OCC. So right. as long as you do that, you can do it well. Sharing this, but there are some times when rather than educating someone in retail about like real complex trust work, sometimes it makes sense to move the client from retail to the private bank because you can do more trust things for them, right? What's important then is to make sure just lace throughout your organization that you just have a client first mentality about everything you do, every decision you make, every investment you make, anytime you like move or do something, like whatever it is, it's always got to be how does this impact clients first? And you got to demand that the advisors have the same creed because in doing so, it does take a lot of the conflict away and well, yeah, I'll do this. But now when you do that and you move a client from one part of the organization to the next, Everybody wants, I'm, I'm a 100% believer, they wouldn't be here, that they want to do it in the best interest of their client. However, anytime what's in the best interest of the client is in contradiction to what, how people are impacted financially, you're just running a business model that is not ideal, right? Like it just, you know what I mean? You don't want conflicting interests uh, to arise in any part of the organization, in particular between your two most important constituencies, your clients and your employees, Right. So what we've done is you just we figured out compensation programs that allow us to treat people with respect. If it goes from retail to trust or trust to retail, we have comp agreements in place where they still get paid for a certain period of time. If the client brings on additional assets, they'll get paid on that, too. So we've tried to take a lot of the conflict that might exist for doing the right thing out of a client by making sure we have the comp agreements in place, which is important. And then the one thing you talked about, Jeremy, was licensing. As we sit here now, we do not have any licensed individuals in our private bank. I'm a big proponent in a lot, I guess, a few things in this particular example. The first is collaboration in a two-way street. We're trying to build conduits from a lot of our intellectual capital, product construction, syndication, et cetera, that exists in our private bank and map it over to retail. We are trying to take the broker-dealer from retail and map it over to the private bank and get our private bank folks licensed. It helps us for a variety of reasons. It helps us from a recruiting perspective. It helps us give better advice. It gives us more flexibility in what kind of solutions we present. Ultimately, though, when we have a key bank advisor sitting in front of an ultra high net worth individual and they're competing with a Morgan Stanley or a JP Morgan or an RIA or fill in the blank, I don't want there to be any disadvantage from that key bank person sitting in front of that client. And now we consider not having a license being a disadvantage. So we're going to close that gap. I agree. Well, you guys are doing a great job without Scott and I participating. In so this, the best podcast when you hear less from Scott and I and more from you guys, you're doing a great job. But at this point, I think I really have to turn it over to Scott for uh, one of my favorite questions, because we've been talking a lot about growing assets and opportunities, but the other side of that is protect. And I want to get to that question, but real quickly, Joe, you're mentioning trust. Do you have kind of a soft dividing line between investment services and trust? And if a client has over, you know, 2 million, it has to go to trust or something like that. How do you handle that? And I mean, talking about the best interest of the client, but if the client likes the advisor, but you say it has to go up to trust, how is all that handled? Yeah. So it was at 1 million effective this year. We moved it to 2 million. Okay. Um, in my experience in that, Scott, because I do hear advisors say things like that often, and I do think there is some legitimacy to the question. We really make those decisions on a client-by-client -client basis, but ultimately, we believe then at that point, the right thing is to bring in the private bank. That's why we have the comp agreements in place 
to be able to like lessen the impact that it might have on me as an advisor financially, but also in paying them to do it, you can also impose the expectation on them that Joe, we would expect you to introduce this client and do it in a way where you are introducing a partner that works within key that's going to be able to help that relationship continue to grow over time. Not so much a conversation like, hey, I don't want to do this, but I have to because we have this arbitrary number at 2 million, right? So how that's positioned to a client ultimately dictates how they respond to a situation like that. And if done right, it generally should be additive or a good client experience that just creates further deepening opportunities over time. Yeah, absolutely. And it has to be done right. And there needs to be a lot of training and reinforcement about how to do it right, right? Because the words matter when you're in that situation. All right. So the question that Bob inferred or referred to is the protection question. And what I mean by that is you, Joe, mentioned a while ago that you have to do what's right for the client. We know intuitively what's right for the client is not only help them grow their assets, but help them protect their assets. And we generally have dropped the ball on helping clients protect their assets, especially in our channel. If we look broadly across the financial services industry, 2001 was a record year for life insurance sales more life insurance sales than any time since 1983, right? But the bank channel didn't really benefit from that because you know we collect the stats, right? So we saw a decrease actually in life insurance sales across our channel. So we're not doing that. We're not helping. I mean, if you're an advisor, your job is to help your clients grow their assets and protect their assets. And we always say you're only doing half your job if you're only focused on helping them grow their assets. So, and let's, because we've been talking for a while, so let's keep this almost a lightning round. Just give us kind of your highlights and your thoughts on what has to happen for us as a channel to get better at helping clients protect their assets. Yeah, I think it's a great question. Look, admittedly on this one, we are very much with the industry norm in that we're not very good at it, is the truth of it all. We have a group within KeyBank super talented group, I think of four or five people within our insurance group that help from an education perspective, like help advisors have conversations that are meaningful to clients. I would say even more so than that, though, they partner with advisors on deals where insurance expertise is needed. And more often than not, that's in partnership with our either people in our business group, our commercial banking group, pick your deal, where key man insurance is needed for a business owner. And that's generally kind of where we stick to our business advice for business owners on, okay, here's a need for insurance. We have not broadened it out very effectively, like most groups, like I had said, to the rest of the population out there and to the rest of the clients. I do think we'll get there over time. I don't think it's going to be this year or next year, admittedly, but I agree with you that it's an important part of the financial foundation that every client needs to have. And I think it really fits in well with some of the second story stuff that we talked about earlier to the extent that you graduate people into the second story model, the depth of their conversations now, because they're solely focused on their book, get even deeper than they had before. The insurance conversation could be even more meaningful in that scenario. So look, I wish I had more to offer on that one, Scott. I think we're in the, in the same boat that most are in that we wish we were doing more of it. We have a plan to do more of it but we are going to prioritize it sequentially, which means it's not going to get done this year or next. Yeah. Well, but I think your point is well taken. And that is as advisors mature their business, they're going to get into deeper discussions, right? And if advisors are focused on managing the majority of their clients' assets, as opposed to the minority, the thing that the good advisors realize is that there's a significant halo effect 
in talking to their clients about their protection needs because it builds trust. It really doesn't matter how much money they're making from the insurance premiums. What matters is, is that enables them to collect more assets, to gather more assets because it builds trust. So holistically, it's much better for the business. And that's, I think, the message that we have to send to advisors out there because that is holistic planning and that's doing your job. So Jeremy, you have any high level thoughts in that regard? Yeah, yeah. just quickly, I, I was trying to think of just a super kind of lightning round way of saying what you see in 20 years of talking with banks and credit unions, they've really fallen only a couple buckets. Either one, they outsource it completely. And then it's just a mix max cultural connection. Hey, we just pass it over the fence to the guy down the street. Or you have institutions that do a little bit of in-house along with their advisors and they don't play well in the sandbox very well and it's not a great solution. Or they just completely ignore it. I mean, literally, those are like the three buckets you see. Yeah. I mean, that's it, right? So I was surprised, Joe, to hear, actually, you confirm that you're, so don't, you know, no offense, right, that you're with the majority of everyone else. But the fact that you believe in advice surprises me because I would say when folks lead with advice, they tend to do more insurance because they're hopefully creating more of a foundational plan type of approach. So maybe that doesn't apply there, but I, I do see that some more. And But I think you're in a good spot because you're starting out on the right foot to get into that versus you know having to start all over again. I think you probably recognize that. So, I mean, I really just see that they do it. Everybody does it a little differently. And I'm still not convinced on which way works, whether it's financial advisor does the insurance business or you partner with it, someone focused on insurance. I see it 50-50. I don't really have an, a, one way or another. I'd, I'd love to see what you guys think. I think I see it both ways, honestly. <laughs> yeah. I, I, That's the million dollar question, right? I think a teammate position properly tends to work the best from what we've seen, right? Having somebody that is really knowledgeable and focuses on insurance and is brought in as a teammate and yeah. a subject matter what expert. you think, right? Yeah. That does work. Now, Jeremy, you mentioned something that if you're more planning and advice-centric, you're selling more insurance. You would hope that's the case, and we haven't seen that at all, right? Because we've seen the adoption of financial planning in our channel significantly, and insurance sales haven't increased. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the focus has been on advisory business and growing advisory business. So that's been a huge distraction because financial planning does help with growing advisory business. And good for us because we're generating more recurring revenue and advisory business is more relationship-oriented business. But protection has been neglected because of that, because we've seen such a drive for advisory business. So I think that could be the next phase after advisory business becomes the norm and we're getting close. But I believe that's part of the problem. It's been almost a distraction away from the protection needs. Yeah, look, I agree with you. I wouldn't interpret our inability to do it today or even our unwillingness to tackle it in the next 18 months as like, I wouldn't infer that that's like a reflection of like, we don't think it's important or an important part of the financial foundation. It's just a lot longer bridge. We're starting from a dead stop. You know what I mean? Yeah. Selling investments today. We're doing mutual funds today. We're getting better at advisory business. We're becoming less transaction dependent. Our profitability around our AUM is a lot better today than it was even 18 months ago. There's all kinds of like momentum that we're going there. On the insurance part, most firms are starting from a dead stop. So then you got to think about, do you, so tackle the question first on do we third party do it? So like, okay, we've disintermediated ourselves a little bit from the process. So if a client gets an adverse insurance underwriting decision, I can that was them, not us. Let's go back to living happily ever after. Like there's all kinds of things I think firms need to think about and need to be very smart about how they position. And if you're going to educate internally and have your advisors do it, 
I would tell you, I have had some unique roles in my career where I have tried to do that in a bank and have had a heck of a time yeah. getting advisors to do it because the amount of revenue that they see generated from that in relation to what might be recurring fee-based revenue on a high net worth client, it's an uneven trade for them and they're afraid to do it. So then it's about, okay, how do you educate your advisors? How do you have enough insurance carriers where you can now insure people across like health spectrum? So it's never a no, it's just a, hey, here's what it's cost. You still want to do it, right? And the conversation changes. It's like I said, I just it's a more complex matter that most firms are either starting from a dead stop, like I've said, or have delved so little bit into and there's a lot that has to go into figuring those things out, whereas there's not as close of a relation or parallel that might exist from, okay, here's what firms in the bank channel were doing five years ago, and now here's what we're doing today. The proximity of that behavior change expectation is a lot closer and similar to what they've always been doing. This insurance piece, it's just, it's a further bridge to get there, like I said, and you got to think about how you want to build it. Yeah, I think it's worse than starting from a dead stop. We're in reverse. <laughs> right? But I think part of the answer is your process, right? And what I mean by that, if you're an advisor, the only product you have is your process, right? It's the way in which your clients experience you. Because we always say that the products are not your, you know, your advisory accounts or your annuities. Those are somebody else's products. Your products are your process. Now, the most important part of your process is discovery. And you should bake into your discovery process questions about asset protection, just bake it into the discovery process and then you're off and running. I, the good advisors are doing that. And so I think that's eventually going to be the case. We're going to hone our discovery processes and they're going to be asset protection questions in there as there should be, right? All right. So yeah, it's so hard to keep quiet in this conversation. This I know. I see Bob. He's I have been best. sitting on my hands, but I'm going to save it for part three of our discussion here. So right. better listening, tune into the next podcast where we'll talk even more about this. So Bob, now that you're talking, let me just totally pass it back to you because I think you have kind of a wrap up and a lightning round I, question I, because we've had a I good, actually long do, discussion. but I did see Jeremy with a hand raised over there. Did he have a closing comment? I was only going to say I, I'm a recovering insurance salesman, Bob, and it's always interesting. You know, advisors that do insurance tend to be ones that started as insurance advisors, and in fact, at Ameriprise, we actually have quick plug. We actually have a recruiter at our firm that only recruits insurance focused advisors. It's a different conversation. It's a different trans compensation when you move advisors over. The book's different. The other thing, too, is, I mean, think about when you all get licensed. You get licensed, you get your 766 life and health. You put it on the shelf. And the only time you pay any attention to your life and health is just keep it every year. So if what you're selling is your process, your process gets out of whack when you start going down a path you don't go down very often, like insurance, right? I see advisors, they're worried about losing a little, Bob's smiling, right? Losing a little street cred because they're going down a path they're not as comfortable with. So I think they discover it in the front end and never really execute on the, the execution of the need down the road because it's just a muscle they don't use often unless they grew up doing it. Bob, right? Absolutely, absolutely. They're applauding in the background. So yeah, we will have another whole podcast about the protect side of Grow and Protect, but we do have a lightning round question. Every month we like to do a lightning round question. That's what the bell signifies. This month, what is the best recent app that you have downloaded to your phone? And Jeremy, we'll go to you first. Good question. Oh, I know it. Clear app. And here's why. The Clear app. So I'm in Charlotte. It's an American hub. Clear is owned by Delta. So there's no Clear in Charlotte. Now there's Clear everywhere else. I go to Minneapolis a lot because Ameriprise is headquartered there. That's Clear. Now I have Clear. It's my new favorite app. Excellent. Clear. You get through security so much faster. Joe. Yeah. Lavino, 
it's an app where you can take a picture of wine labels. It'll tell you what is it, it's rating, where you can get it, how much it costs. In a market like this, Bob, it's not uncommon to see a bottle of red wine on the Scarta table for dinner. Absolutely. I've had that one actually for a bit. Scott. So, Vivino, I was going to say, Vivino's great because you can go to the wine shop too. And if it's a wine you've never yeah. tried before, you snap picture of the label and you get a review of it. It's very oh. cool. And I think they've added functionality where if you have a wine list in a restaurant, you can actually snap picture the wine list and learn about the wines on the wine list. So, that was what I was thinking of. But as Jeremy and Bob, you know, Joe, you don't, I'm really into music. And SoundCloud is a service and an app. And what SoundCloud is, is quote, amateur musicians, unquote, can upload music, albums, whatever they want. What amazes me about SoundCloud is the quality of music that some of these amateur, and I'm saying it in quotes, amateur musicians upload. It's better than stuff you find on iTunes. I mean, some of the stuff is amazing and it's it's all free and it's it's awesome stuff. That's been my most interesting one recently, just because I discover all these musicians that (laughs) don't have contracts, right? Bob, what about you? Uh, mine is actually my cable TV provider has their app. I'm in New York, so we have Optimum here. And their app lets me completely control my DVR from recording, deleting, watching. I can do everything from my phone. And I toggle between New York and Florida a lot, so I can see whatever I'm recording from anywhere. We always like to have a little fun with that last question. So, Scott, let me throw it back to you, and then we'll take it from there. All right. So, uh, yeah, no, I just want to thank both of you, Joe and Jeremy, for participating in all your insights and thoughts. I thought this was a good, engaging discussion. So much appreciated. And uh, I hope we get to do it again. And Bob, you have some official wrap-up comments, right? Yes. Just before that, I have my three top takeaways because people call me every month if I don't have this listed. Is Bob, what are your three top takeaways this month? Well, this month it's Number one, keep up with the technology experience where your customers will migrate away. Number two, forebears in 22 years. Okay, it will end. And my last takeaway, as books and business get so big, your value proposition may be affected. Think about how to manage that. Take the clients away, but show them the science and you will absolutely prove to them that it is a good thing. Thanks to our panel once again. Thanks to Janet Capaletti from Bank Channel Research for her help in coordinating all the data and research for this and all the BISA Industry 10 Watch podcasts. Thanks to Jeff Hartney. And thanks again to Ameriprise for the continuing sponsorship of this podcast series. Don't forget the two other podcast series focused on our industry called Untangling Fintech and Industry Leadership and Success. These, of course, can be found wherever you get your other podcasts. So I think it's now time to say goodbye, Scott. Goodbye, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Thanks again. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this episode of BISA Industry Trend Watch. And thanks to Ameriprise for their much appreciated support. Be sure to subscribe to our two other podcast series, Industry Leadership and Success, focused on industry-leading performance and success stories, and Untangling Fintech, aimed at helping you keep up with the evolution of technology offerings in our industry. Goodbye until next month.